previously on Areas of Agreement. I think there's a number of different topics that we could delve into to where we would think differently just because of where we live, just because of our zip code. There's long been lots of coverage about rural America, but if it's serving an affluent metropolitan audience, if it's from the outside looking in, that's where you get tropes and stereotypes. Oftentimes I, I sense a kind of asymmetry of curiosity where it does seem, at least in my world, that liberals tend to be more interested in conservatives than vice versa. Quote unquote, we as the liberals feel like we are not getting what we want out of the experiment. Does that sound right? 40% thinks that this election was stolen. That's, you cannot move forward with that. There's just no choice. And if we're the only ones reaching out and we shouldn't have to be, so be it. Hey, it's Elliot Powers. I was reflecting recently on what issues I've covered and whose voices I've included in the first six episodes of this podcast on the urban-rural divide. Access to healthy and affordable food, K-12 education funding inequities, the higher ed to workforce pipeline, local news deserts, having constructive conversations across difference. These are all topics that affect people in urban and rural areas, which is why teams taking part in urban-rural actions national and state-level programs have done projects on them, and why I've highlighted them in recent episodes. When it comes to the voices I've chosen to help tell these stories, I've come to realize that they skew rural. Take the first few seconds of episode one. Cal Muniz grew up in a place that's as rural as it gets. He lived 15 miles outside Phillipsburg, Montana. Population, 923. I went to the only high school around, of course, and my graduating class was 11 people. I've done quite a few interviews with rural residents or people who grew up rural about those places. Rural Adams County is a lot more of a red county, pretty low population density. We tend to think more along the lines of self-reliance. Pekin is a town of about 30,000 people, 15 minutes outside Peoria in central Illinois. Caroline County is almost like the Alaska of Virginia counties because it's huge physically. We are in the county seat of Muskingum County. We are the typical situation where someone says, oh, I drove through there once. I've heard a lot about the problems facing rural residents. Things like high unemployment, um, low educational attainment. Living in a very rural place and discovering that it is a food desert here. And kind of the irony of that, that, you know, I live on a farm and that all around me are farms, but they're not farms that grow food that people can eat directly. When it comes to investment and grants, community colleges aren't always, right, the number one focus on some of those innovations as well. But then when you drill down to rural community colleges, you know, they're even receiving less of that. Especially those areas that are economically struggling also tend to lack the kind of digital infrastructure that is needed. As media writ large has struggled a bit, the kind of rural beat and the rural coverage is often one of the first that gets hit. And when we think about rural, that's not unique. I mean, when you think about the struggles of American healthcare, when you think about COVID-19, 
When there's kind of pain points that descend on all of us, rural are often the first to feel it. But people in urban areas feel it as well. And in many cases, even more dramatically when it comes to things like education funding and food deserts. And look, I don't want to be too hard on myself here. In prior episodes, I've spoken to people in the Uniting for Action America program and other experts as well who are from urban America, like I am. I'm exactly the guy who Zane State College President Chad Brown described just a moment ago. The guy who, when talking about a rural area, usually says, I've driven through there once. So I think it's fair to conclude that one of the reasons I focused a lot of my attention on rural areas is that I'm just less familiar with them, more curious about them. And I'm definitely not alone. A small sample size example, all six of the people on the media team who I introduced you to in episode 5 are from urban areas. Two including myself from Washington DC, two from Chicago, and two from LA. Geographic diversity? Sure. Urban-rural diversity? Not so much. And we were all curious to learn about rural, not from each other, but in hearing the stories of people who lived in a sprawling county in Virginia. I'm normally hesitant to call anything a trend, but in recent years, anecdotally speaking, there seem to be more ways than ever before to learn about rural America. In the news... In rural communities across America, there's a sense of being forgotten and left behind. Politicians, they're not paying attention to us. They're out for themselves, every one of them. Too many businesses moved out of this country. There's no jobs. It's a roller coaster. There's nothing here. And it's about time that the people stood up and said, we've had it. The Washington Post. In film. Well, I thought your mama was going to be all right. <laughs> be happy. I know I could have done better. And in books. Hillbilly Elegy, after all, was a paperback before it was a movie. In this episode, I speak with an author who's part of this cottage industry of books about the political and cultural forces shaping rural America. I asked him why he decided to write the book, who his audience is, and why there seems to be so much fascination among people who live in urban areas, like New York City, his current home, about the small rural town thousands of miles away where he grew up. In part two of this episode, I speak to someone with the opposite geographic background. She grew up in a city and now lives not too far away in a rural area. And I asked for her take, not only on the recent attention paid to rural America, but also, as you heard in the opening, why it can be difficult to engage people from these communities in initiatives that try to bridge the divide between urban and rural. Those conversations, coming up next. Ross Benish is from the smallest of small towns. I grew up in Brainerd, Nebraska. It's a town of a little over 300 people. It's about an hour from Lincoln and Omaha. Ross's backstory is like many others who grew up rural. My whole family had lived there for quite a while. Me and my three siblings all went to the same public school. It was just one building, K through 12. We all walked, you know, three blocks to the school. And, um, you know, it's a place where everyone knows everyone. Like, you don't have to lock your doors if you don't want to. The streets are wide. Not much is happening. There's no stoplights. We don't have a grocery store anymore. The institutions his family was involved in included their Catholic Church and the American Legion. And, of course, Husker Bar. Corner of the end zone! 
Touchdown, Nebraska! Named after our uh, football team that doesn't know how to win games anymore. Ross, the good native son he is, went to college at the University of Nebraska, back when the team was winning a few more games. He lived in the state until 2014, at which point he moved to New York City. Ross is a journalist and research analyst, and he's written for Entertainment Weekly, Rolling Stone, and The Wall Street Journal, among other places. In New York, Ross right away had the sense that he stood out as a straight white Christian from a rural area. I've been called um, a diversity hire before because I'm so strange, because no one else talked about like coon hunting or dumpster diving or uh, smashing televisions. Those aren't even things people do in rural areas. Those are just hobbies I have of my own. So I've kind of stood out like a sore thumb at some of the places I've worked at. At Esquire, one of the places Ross worked in New York, his co-workers decided to give him a makeover. He had the habit of wearing his brother's hand-me-downs. That's just what I always did because I come from a working class family where spending lots of money on clothes is an asinine waste of money. I guess few people roll up looking like me. They said I looked like I was from a farm and that my neighbor gave me haircuts in my garage. And I said, well, my dad grew up on a farm and my neighbor did give me haircuts in his garage. For the first few years Ross lived in New York, no one asked him much about where he was from. You know, between 2014 and 2016, being from Nebraska was viewed not really any differently than having blue eyes or brown hair. It's just a biographical fact that really isn't that interesting. And I don't think it's that interesting because, like, all my family and friends are from there. Many people didn't feel like they had incentive to have to be interested in these places that are very different than where they live until there was a big upset in the, you know, political scheme of things. That big upset, of course, was Donald Trump. As the votes began to roll in last night, it became clear that Donald Trump had tapped into the frustration so many Americans felt. His win was fueled by votes in small towns and in rural areas. After 2016, there was a lot more interest in rural America, and especially towns in middle America where Ross is from. A lot of people around him came to realize they knew little about the communities that helped put Trump in the White House. Post-Trump, that was like, a, oh, tell me more about this place. Wow. They have a unicameral legislature? No way. They do these other progressive things? Wow, but they're really red. You know, and just turn into these long conversations. Conversations that kept happening at parties and events where people would say, Ross, you gotta write a book about where you're from. Ross had written a book before, but he doesn't normally write about politics. He was working at the time on something he says he found much more interesting than state politics, pro wrestling. But he thought, maybe my friends are right. And if I was ever going to write about where I'm from and write about Nebraska and get some attention to it, this seemed like the best time since I'd been alive to do that. So he took his friend's advice. And I feel so narcissistic for having listened to them and, and written a memoir, which is kind of a um, vanity exercise in its own. Vanity exercise or not, Ross has a unique vantage point to share. I wanted to write a little bit about where I came from because there's been a lot of focus on these areas and a lot of times the attention given to them is by people who have never lived in a place like that. Ross says people from rural places are often portrayed in the press as caricatures. When CNN comes to town, it probably could find someone to talk to who isn't wearing army fatigues, but yet that's what they choose to do. Trump is still your president! 
happen at some point is there'll be arrests, and that'll include a lot of the line media, and then there'll be military but hasn't tribunals. That, hasn't that been, they keep saying that for well, years, it, and no, it's not it hasn't happened. been years. It hasn't it's been, been years. It's been since 2017. It's been years, Believe though. Me, we're taking it. This is a 6,000-year-old death cult. Right. You can't take it down that quick. I understand your... Another dimension of this caricature is a deep belief in conspiracy theories. There's a lot of people among the 70 million plus people who voted for Trump who aren't Q people who uh, don't even know what that is if you ask them about it. Ross has a deep affection for his home state and town, which comes across in his book, Rural Rebellion, How Nebraska Became a Republican Stronghold. He says he wrote the book with several types of readers in mind, people who haven't been to Nebraska before and locals who wanted to go deep on political issues. I wanted to share some of the things that I thought were beautiful about living in Brainerd, even though I believe towns like it have taken a hard right turn politically. Ross spoke to a range of state politicians for the book about that hard right turn. We have always been a conservative state, but 1990s Nebraska relatively looks very liberal compared to today's Nebraska's politicians. In the past, thanks in part to grassroots activism, Nebraska led the way on things like refugee resettlement and environmental action, causes you'd likely find in blue states. The list goes on, including campaigns to legalize medical marijuana, ban the death penalty, and allow DACA youth to get driver's licenses. There's another reason why Nebraska has historically surprised outsiders with progressive legislation. That has to do with a bold decision state lawmakers made decades ago. The two-house legislature is a relic of the past. In the one-house legislature, there is no way a member can evade his duty. Under the unicameral plan, it is easy for the ordinary citizen to place responsibility where it belongs. Nebraska decided to create a single-house lawmaking body that locals call the unicam or unicameral. The legislature officially recognizes no party affiliation. The Nebraskans generally have a clear sense of who's conservative and who's liberal. We have this very unique nonpartisan legislature and, you know, people didn't really operate like by what party they went on. There was coalitions based on issues. No longer the case. Now it resembles many other legislatures because there's a split between R's and D's when it comes time to vote. And the R's now almost always get their way. Bipartisan alliances are less common than they used to be. Though Ross says there's still some hope for people in the center and left to push their agenda items. So there is some support for some progressive issues when it's not in a partisan context. If a Democratic candidate came to push that legislation themselves, they'd probably not get it passed in Nebraska. That person probably wouldn't get elected if it was statewide. If it was in the legislature, they may not find enough Republicans to vote along with them. But when you put it like in two succinct paragraphs, and you don't mention the words Republican or Democrat, and you just tell people, what do you think of this? You see more support. In Congress, the story is familiar. Nebraska no longer has moderate Democrats like Ben Nelson, a senator who was instrumental in passing President Obama's health care bill. Another sign of the hard right turn? Several House members and the state's attorney general supported the Texas lawsuit to overturn the 2020 presidential election. I asked Ross why it seems, from afar at least, that state politicians are further to the right than their constituents. The people who are in power in the state may not have the most incentive 
to reply to a public opinion poll of Nebraskans because they may be instead influenced more by their out-of-state donors than they are by their Nebraska constituents. The constituents Ross writes about, the Nebraskans he grew up with, are at the center of his book. He explores how living in a rural area can shape your politics and identity. So I just try to show how like I was more conservative when I lived in Brainerd, and I don't think I was just highly irrational 10 years ago. I think there was something about the rhythm of the day of life out there and being in that community and hearing those messages over and over again that would lead a person to that conclusion. And you know, the reverse of that being living in a place like Brooklyn would probably make you a little more liberal. Ross has discussed these topics as he's made the rounds on his virtual book tour. I have my guest on who has a new book called Rural Rebellion, How Nebraska Became a Republican Stronghold. Republican Stronghold, the author is Ross Benish. Ross Benish. Now, Ross may not be a name that's known to all of you. He wasn't known to me up until a couple months ago, but I'm glad that I was e-introduced to him. Uh, Ross joins a growing list of authors who've written about politics and culture in rural America. Beyond Hillbilly Elegy, you might have heard of titles like What's the Matter with Kansas? Or Strangers in Their Own Land, just to name a few. Ross says there probably were too few books about rural America before Trump, and there's probably an oversupply now. Ross says he thinks people have a genuine interest in learning about rural America, even after Trump has left office. But he's more skeptical about political groups. Like, does the National Democratic Party really care about rural people? Uh, Gonna have a hard time convincing people that they do, and that it's not just opportunistic because they had egg on their face. I asked Ross whether he thinks there's as much demand for content about urban America directed at a rural audience as there is demand for content about rural America directed at an urban audience. My sense is that generally speaking, the interest flows one way. And Ross agreed. There is a symmetry right now in that there's more books about like rural areas directed at urban readers and vice versa. But that's because in New York City, I don't like turn on the TV and see a bunch of stuff about rural America. People in rural America, by default, no matter what they do, get the views of urban America directed at them. I mean, even Fox News, which claims to be like the the champion of a conservative cause, uh, is produced in midtown New York with millionaire hosts who are living in very nice suburbs in New Jersey, right? That's outside of New York City. And, And I don't think people in my hometown would care to think about New York City much if it wasn't forced upon them in every single uh, movie and magazine and book and television show that they come across. Coming up next, I ask a member of the Urban Rural Action Leadership Team who lives in a rural part of Maryland if she agrees that there's asymmetry of interest between urban and rural residents, and whether it's difficult to get rural Americans interested in bridge-building initiatives. Kira Hammond was born in the early 1970s. She grew up in a downtown neighborhood of Baltimore called Bolton Hill. It was diverse, but segregated, just like her Baltimore City public school. So this is right after the Baltimore riots and white flight to the suburbs. And so, you know, my parents were kind of weird hippie holdouts in the city. Kira's parents were adamant not to be part of the white flight. They were proud to stay in Baltimore. And Kira was glad the family did. Growing up in Baltimore, she later came to realize, is a big part of her identity. When Baltimore gets attacked, which it often does, Kira gets defensive. You know, it's like having a younger sibling. It's okay for me to shit talk about Baltimore, but not nobody else better talk. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time Kira was having a quintessentially urban upbringing, she also had one toe in rural America. 
Growing up, she spent summers at a family farm in West Virginia. She loved her time there, and those summers made her want to live in the country one day. After high school, she spent about a decade in New England, first in a rural college town in western Massachusetts, and later in rural Vermont during grad school. When it was time to settle down after school, she and her husband, who grew up in Iowa, wanted to own some land and have some animals. They wanted to be near family too, and Iowa was out of the question. So, Western Maryland it was. We, you know, we're an hour and a half from Baltimore, and we're in the country, but not the country. Kira definitely lives in a rural area, but perhaps not as sparsely populated or spread out as some of rural America. Years ago, Kira began teaching at the University of Penn State, Mon Alto, a branch campus in southern Pennsylvania. She's an assistant teaching professor in mathematics, and she directs the school's honors program. The university has a diverse mix of students, rural white students from nearby and urban students from Baltimore, D.C., and Philly, who are often non-white. Kira recognized the need for students to respectfully and effectively communicate with people from different places. I sort of started structuring a lot of my honors seminars around that idea of how to meaningfully interact with someone who you really disagree with and how to really be interested in what they think, how to not just be planning your own rebuttal. And then the 2016 election happened. And it was clear that doing this with college students in rural Pennsylvania was not sufficient. Not sufficient, meaning Kira knew she needed to scale up. These conversations needed to happen beyond the college campus. So she started leading workshops in her community and beyond. And through this, she met Joe Bubman, the executive director of Urban Rural Action. Joe asked Kira if she'd want to be involved in his new organization, and she said yes. Kira is now Urban Rural Action's Mid-Atlantic Regional Director. Kira's career and life experiences make her an ideal person to do this kind of bridge-building work. She understands both types of communities well because she's lived there. The people out here need to understand people in the city just as much as people in the city need to understand people out here. And Kira has noticed a key difference among urban and rural residents. City people tend to be more aware that they don't really know what's going on in the country and maybe more interested in finding out, but also much more sure of themselves and their own beliefs and opinions, much less willing to believe that they could be wrong. Rural people, I think, are more willing to say, yeah, I don't get that. And Kira says they're often much less interested in finding out the answer. Kira observed the same phenomenon that Ross described earlier, a post-2016 awakening. She heard a lot of urban liberals, in good faith, trying to understand what was happening in rural America. We had no idea you were so upset, was sort of the narrative, right? And like, so, so talk to us, tell us what's going on. Sometimes that worked, but often it was more like, let us explain to you why you're wrong about this and why your perspective is actually skewed and our perspective is the, the correct one. Kira and her friends call this libsplaining. And it's just one reason why some people in rural communities remain skeptical of efforts to bridge ideological and geographic divides. There's a conversation that sticks in Kira's head. It was from early 2017, and she was talking to a friend's wife. The wife's husband, a conservative elected official from Pennsylvania, was working with Kira on a bridge-building initiative. But the wife was skeptical. After that election, she basically said something to the effect of, oh, so now you want to talk? 
and not not to me you know like but but like that was her that was sort of how she felt about this effort on the part of what she at least perceived to be liberals and probably urban liberals to bridge this divide which has been there for ages and ages and ages and ages and ages that was the first time kira remembers someone articulating that point of view I asked Kira whether it's harder to get people from rural areas to take part in urban-rural action and other bridge-building programs. Kira said in many cases, yes. But to a large extent, that's a reflection of the fact that it's harder to get conservatives engaged, which is an acknowledged problem in this work. Though, as Kira noted, there are plenty of people in rural areas who aren't politically conservative. Another point she made is that people from rural areas tend to have a different mindset than people from urban areas. If you live in the country, you kind of want to be left alone, at least some. I'm not saying everyone in the country is a recluse or something, but, you know, you don't want your neighbors right on top of you. You don't want to have to say good morning to people on your way to work. And in the city, maybe you want that and that's why you're in the city, or maybe you're just used to it. I think when, when people live in close proximity to each other, they have a different understanding of the importance of collaboration and communal action. which may help explain why some rural residents are hesitant to take part in collaborative community-building programs. Kira says community outreach and relationship building are key to getting rural residents engaged. Most people who agree to do this kind of work from this community do it because someone they know and trust has vouched for it, essentially. (laughs) In the city, you could go to the co-op and put up a flyer on the bulletin board and you know, people could text you if they're interested and you'd get half a dozen people that in a week. You can't really do that out here. You have to do personal outreach. Urban Rural Action is doing plenty of that. Not just recruiting people from rural areas, but also from urban areas. Especially now, given that a political era has come to an end. I gotta say, I was really worried ahead of the 2020 election that if Trump lost, it would all come crashing to a halt and that people would suddenly no longer, they'd be like, phew, okay, that's over. But for the most part, Kira says her fear hasn't materialized. A lot of people are still interested in having conversations and taking action across difference. Urban Rural Action has new state-level programs coming up, and there's plenty of programming on peace building. The Uniting for Action America program, the one I took part in along with 30-some other people, has come to an end. But not before we all completed those projects I've been reporting on over the past few months. And not before we all signed on to a statement supporting efforts to strengthen our democracy through supporting constructive discourse, amplifying historically underrepresented and suppressed voices, spending more time with people who are different from us, consuming news from a diverse set of credibly sourced media outlets, and validating the information we consume on social media. Joe's been busy making the case through op-eds that bridge-building efforts shouldn't champion superficial civility and celebrate unity, but rather expand movements to advance peace, justice, and democracy. And Joe's been spreading the gospel to a wide audience. He was recently joined by the likes of James Clyburn and Sam Brownback, talk about coming together across difference, on a panel about racial reconciliation. And so our mission, simply, is to bring Americans together across geographic, political, racial, 
generational and other divides to build relationships, strengthen collaboration skills, explore different perspectives on issues, and take action together on issues that impact all communities. That's all for now in this limited run series. Though there might be an occasional follow-up in the future. It's been my pleasure hosting and reporting. I'll leave you with the words Joe wrote and I mentioned moments ago. Peace, justice, and democracy.